Uh, Paula has been a friend of mine for a good many years. She's a real special person. She's a real happy, positive person. Of course, when I saw her when she first got here, she said, Nana, I haven't smiled since she gave me that topic. <laughs> but come on up, Paula. We're, we appreciate you being here and sharing with us this morning. Hi, everybody. I'm Paula. I'm from um, Norman, Oklahoma. I'm an alcoholic and a member of Al-Anon and a compulsive overeater and a compulsive shopper and um, a compulsive gambler. Joyce is reminding me. <laughs> and, but uh, I've laughed. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really watch all these other compulsions because I don't want to join anything you have to quit entirely. I don't want to have to quit anything else entirely. Um, ah, the, the title of this talk is interesting. I'm, I'm going to have to tell you, I guess, just about me and, and my life. Um, and I really enjoyed what you had to say, Robin, and, and everybody's comments. It's really, I think most of us get here with, um, I guess, Little or no self-esteem. If we ever had any, I guess it's been it's been uh, beat out of us, or we've beat it out of ourselves, or something. Um, and I think it's that not so much that um, not only do we think, or certainly true for me, poorly of myself, but I also thought only of myself. You know, I was just so self-obsessed, and I think this has been, um, and I can still get into it today. Um, this has been what what uh, one of the things that keeps me from feeling that healing power of joy and laughter. Um, I'm not sure. I remember the first after my husband was in treatment the second time, and we were going to an um, intergroup meeting. I went. He was in treatment. And I went out to dinner with them with like uh, three AA couples, AA and Al-Anon couples, and I remember sitting there and they were laughing. And I had not laughed in a long, long time. You know, just a silly thing. Okay. Thank you. That I, um, I think what I really had to do, I couldn't, you know, I could laugh at, at something like that. And, and that was probably the beginning of opening up. And it was certainly for me, um, you know, they say this is a program of attraction. And like our speaker last night, that was funny. You know, I would I would drive miles to hear a funny speaker and laugh because some, especially early, sometimes that was the only thing funny in in my life. You know, was to hear. And, and I thought, you know, people would talk about terrible things, and and the audience would laugh. I thought, my God, they are really sick. <laughs> that's not funny. But then I began to see, yeah, it was funny because that's you know they'd survive. They were doing all right. And uh, I've learned since that the ability to laugh at yourself is a sign of, of good mental health, whatever that is. But, um, I was I was raised to be a serious person. My parents were. Um, my dad was a school administrator, school principal, and my mother was a teacher. And they were older when they had me. I was an only child, and our house was very quiet. You know, I read a lot. I still read quite a bit, but. Um, Life was serious, and um, yeah, I was kind of like an old little girl. And my my parents, neither one of them drank. You know, I, I guess 
in some ways our family was dysfunctional. My father was a diabetic, and that was that's very much that can be very much like alcoholism in in the way of controlling the family and focusing on the sick person and and um, I think that somehow early on I got a lot of my Al-Anon characteristics in that um, I thought that if my parents weren't happy it was my fault. I thought somehow that was my role to make them happy, you know, to do to do whatever it was they wanted me to do to to um and and they were happy when I was good and got good grades and all that and they were unhappy when I didn't. And and yet along with that I had that rebellious nature of the alcoholic. So um you know, those those two things were kind of fighting fighting in me. And I got I really rebelled. I guess if I if I'd lived in a later time, I would have uh, been a maybe a runaway druggie or something. I don't know. But back then, you didn't do that. I wouldn't I would not have dreamed of running away from home. But what I did was I got pregnant. That's that back then. That was how you ran away from home. I guess. <laughs> the joke was on me. <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you what a deal. <laughs> but yeah, I found myself at. Um, 17, really more dependent on my parents than I'd ever been because I'd gotten married and had this baby and gotten divorced. It was, you know, I didn't hardly, I mean, I, I didn't have a clue what was going on about marriage and motherhood and that sort of thing. So, um, my parents, I, I was even more dependent on my parents because they were going to help me go to college and that sort of thing. So I ended up, you know, through that being, being really, um, more dependent on them. And, and I, I still wasn't drinking. Um, so I guess when I was like in my early 20s is when I started drinking. But it was interesting. The people, the men that I ran with, the men that I was attracted to were all alcoholics. You know, I would have married, when I first came to program, I blamed my husband because I started daily drinking after we got married. Um, I was destined to marry an alcoholic. I was not attracted to other people. You know, I'd go out on a date or two with some guy that was a, you know, fairly well-adjusted, normal person, and I was so bored. You know, it was just ho-hum. So, so um, Daryl is a pediatrician, and um, we've laughed. I thought he was rich, and he thought I was sexy. <laughs> we knew each other two weeks and got married. And what's really funny is August 1st is going to be our 19th wedding anniversary. And, that, you know, that is really, um, there were, a, you know, during the bad years of the drinking. I think a lot of the reason that we stayed together is because neither one of us could get it together enough to leave. I can remember when when we... I can remember getting the suitcase out, and I was—I guess could, you know it was just too overwhelming to even pack it. I just, oh well. But shortly, shortly after um, we were married, I decided that I wanted to lose some weight, and I had kind of played around with some with some pills before, like some amphetamines in college to stay awake for exams or something. And you know, for somebody. That is a control junkie, if you will. Somebody that wants to feel powerful. Amphetamines are the answer. Um, you know, I really, 
really that and that was part of why the euphoria was just part of it but the feeling of being able to do anything was was real addictive to me and um i just got real sick with um you know with with abusing pills i a typical day in um in my life at that time was i was working as a as a supervisor i could relate to managing people as a supervisor at the telephone company and i you know we our hours started early and, and um, i would get up and take uh, a cup maybe one or two amphetamines and get ready for work and go to work and maybe at noon go um grocery shopping or run home and clean house or you know put up the groceries or something and you know taking amphetamines all day and work till five or six and um go home and cook a gourmet meal and then like wallpaper the dining room <laughs> i mean it was incredible and people would go, boy, you have a lot of energy. And I go, yeah, really? I'm a lucky person. And I, I could not believe that other people, you know, I thought, God, this is really neat. But, and yet somehow there was some well, there was some well part of me that knew that, that couldn't go on. You know, that, 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 um, and of course over the years, you know, I did that for years. I would drink in the evening to kind of come down because one problem, one little drawback with amphetamines is you can't sleep. And, um, so, but it was a tiny drawback, Margaret. <laughs> but, um, then, then I would take sleeping pills at night. Well, you know, that's toxic. That is just real, real toxic. And, um, we were just getting sicker and sicker. And, and of course, Daryl, I just saw him come in and remind me how sick he was, too. <laughs> I can, I can remember one day, um, Coming home at noon, and he was, he was, um, as I said, you know, from the day we got married, daily drinking. I, we hadn't been married a week or two, and I remember finding, um, like a half pint under the car seat. And, you know, I came from a, from a, I knew somewhat normal behavior. I came from a family that didn't drink, and I was appalled at that. But you know what I thought? I thought that he was just drinking because he was unhappy. He'd been through a bitter divorce, and his children had been moved to another state. And I thought that I could make him happy enough that he wouldn't have to drink, you know. And I just got busy. And, <laughs> and um, of course, you know how that goes. But anyway, I came home at noon. I wanted my little, you know, doing something. And he was he was drinking in the day. And, of course, he was in academic medicine, and I'm sure he was um, getting in trouble at the time. He had fixed himself lunch. He had a can of chicken soup, a can of sardines, all mixed together with vodka. <laughs> I thought, you know what? How do you justify your husband doing something like that? <laughs> you know, I don't know. But that was so, you know, I can remember. That's an incredible denial system that can overlook that kind of behavior. But um, um, I think 
when I married Daryl and, and, you know, the first few years, and we had some good years. We had some years that were, that he wasn't getting in a lot of trouble. I, anybody that would have known about alcoholism, and a couple of people tried to talk to us, anybody that could have seen our life could have seen we were just heading for trouble as fast as we could. But we didn't, we didn't see it that way. You know, I thought, um, I thought there was a line that you crossed over, but I thought I'd be able to see it. I thought I'd see it and jump back, you know, and I didn't realize that you don't see it till after you're already over it. But I, I liked our life. I liked the drinking. I thought it was, um, even early, before maybe I had, you know, a, you know, being neurotic but not really having a, a drinking problem yet at a point maybe I could have stopped. But I wanted life in the fast lane. You know, I thought my parents' lives were, were boring and dull, and that, that wasn't what I wanted. And I, even then, you know, I did, I went away to, to run from the problems, and um, I was, I was poorly equipped, even, even before I had problems with alcohol or drugs. I was poorly equipped to handle life's problems. And, um, of course, once, once you start drinking, then you lose what skills you were developing. So you really, you really get yourself in a double bind. But I, one way I, I heard a speaker say I could really relate to it, I wanted life to tickle, you know. And it just doesn't. It doesn't for anybody all the time. But um, I thought I had real unrealistic expectations. I thought I thought that it should. Um, as I said, we had maybe four or five good years where we were where things were going well. Uh, things started getting bad, and we started doing what a lot of alcoholics do. We made uh, started making geographical cures. I could see after four or five years that I was just working as hard as I could, and I wasn't, obviously, I wasn't making Daryl happy enough. He was still drinking, and it was, you know, drinking more. So um, we looked at, you know, looked at what was going on, and we decided it had to be his job. Although I don't remember ever talking very much about drinking at this point. But what I would say, I would say things like, you need to watch it, Daryl, so you don't drink too much, you know, and uh, <laughs> so what he did was start hiding it from me, and um, he wore, as, he was in academic medicine, as I said, there at the uh, University of Oklahoma in the Department of Pediatrics, and he had a research lab, and he'd wear these big lab coats and carry these little lab bottles <laughs> of <laughs> grain alcohol or whatever. And, you know, I still, um, I get a physical reaction when I see a little plastic bottle to this day. <laughs> it's just a, ooh. Um, so, we moved to West Virginia. Well, if you're having trouble in your life and uh, your drinking is starting to be a problem and you're starting to have family problems and with your kids and that sort of thing, all you need to do is move to a new place, and for us, it really got worse. The added stress of of the move and trying to adjust to a new place was, um, you know, just a nightmare. And that was the first time that I remember going to anybody about my problem, which was Daryl. And I went to a psychiatrist there, and I told him 
about Daryl's drinking. Of course, I'd taken amphetamines, I'm sure, before I went to, you know, have the courage to, to confront something that painful. So, he, um, what I remember that he said after I talked to him, I, I went a couple of times, and he saw Daryl a few times, and Daryl went drunk. You know, what can I say? <laughs> so, I think Daryl showed him the problem, but he was, this was like, um, I guess, 10 or 11 years ago. And there wasn't a lot known, or at least the people that, there wasn't the, the public information there is now. And um, so, what I heard him say was, your husband is drinking um, related to stress of the mood. And what you all need to do is, and he did tell us, tell us some good things, you need to get a support system because we've moved away from our family. And you need friends you can talk to and that sort of thing. Of course, anybody that understands um, alcoholism knows that even, even when we were around our friends and family, I didn't talk to them about the real problem. Part of the reason was I was in denial and I didn't know what the real problem was. But I couldn't even say things like, gosh, Daryl drank too much last night. And I was in such denial and I was so ashamed I couldn't even say that to close family members or close friends. Um, but this, this psychiatrist told us that we need to get this system of, of a support system and friends and that we didn't need to stop drinking, but we needed to drink normally, to drink socially. And, uh, of course, that's just what Daryl wanted to hear. You know? <laughs> but um, that was where I... The other thing we did, and, and we took a drive yesterday afternoon, and it really brought back because a lot of the countryside here looks like... Uh, it reminds me of West Virginia. And we saw some... We bought an old farmhouse out on the hill. A hundred-year-old farmhouse that had been partially renovated that needed more renovation. And, you know, for, for perfectionists like me that thinks if you can just fix up your home nice enough, it will be happy and your family will be wonderful. You know, an old farmhouse, it really helped me get here fast. <laughs> I worked so hard on that. I really did. And, and um, you know, it's... I'm a perfectionist, and it, you know, it wouldn't be perfect, and I just, um, I remember cutting quarter rounds to put around the wood floors that I just finished, and I'd have to buy two or three times as much to be able to cut it, you know, so it would just fit just perfectly. And, um, of course, when you're, when you're using drugs and, and drinking, your perception's not all that good either, and I was having, I was really having trouble by that point. I'm gonna tell you just, and I didn't remember this until, I guess, Maybe a couple of years ago, and we've been both been sober for um, about eight and a half years now. So this, I think, this is that illustrated to me how these. It takes a long time for some of these memories to come back, you know. To, to um, and I think that's good. If this had all flooded back on me the first year, I probably would have been in a mental institution. I, you know, I think that's that's um, that's really a God-given ability in a lot of cases. To, to shut out some of these painful things. But this was a Sunday morning in that old farmhouse, and I can, Daryl had gotten up early. And I can remember coming down the stairs and seeing him at the kitchen cabinet with a bottle of bourbon to his lips, drinking out of the bottle, which we all know is not social drinking. <laughs> and I said, 
Daryl, are you drinking? <laughs> and he said no. <laughs> and I said good. <laughs> you know, that's what our life was like. <laughs> that, you know, if that's not the typical... <laughs> I wanted to believe that he didn't have a problem when I could see it with my own eyes. And, you know, I'm real glad we can laugh about that today. <laughs> but um, that shows you how, how bad our life was right then. We uh, did another thing. We moved again. We moved to somewhere we were even more disoriented. We moved to West Germany. That was the only position he could get um, or at least the one he did get at that time, was as a civilian medical officer. And we lived in uh, West Germany for a year. And that was, you know, it just, it really did get worse. Although, he at that time, he would have periods of control. The other thing that got worse is I couldn't get pills. So, <laughs> so I drank a lot more wine than I ever had before because the wine was really uh, readily available. And it was real good. And it was cheap. So, um we we were there for a year, and he would have periods of really trying to control. Just you know, I I look back now, and I, I he was just you know it was amazing really. They did as well as they could. But the the funny thing there by then I was so um, filled with I guess resentment and and anger and all these things that when he would be trying to really stop or take her off, you know he was into detox then of, you know, just kind of tapering off. I would deliberately do something to get him so angry that I knew he'd start drinking again. And to this day, I, you know, I don't, I, I guess it's that love-hate, that love-hate thing. I can remember, and we were laughing yesterday with them on our driving around about how treacherous the roads are and these big trucks just came barreling down on you. When we were in West Virginia, you know, the, the, um, those coal trucks would just get right behind you and it was kind of going down to our driveway, to our house. It was kind of a, a decline and they'd start going real fast and they'd just get right behind you. And I can, he was driving a blazer then. I can remember that he would, um, get out of that car and not be able to walk. He'd be so drunk. And you know, I, it was that thing where I was afraid he would get killed. And then I was afraid he wouldn't get killed. You know, I just, it, it's a real love-hate thing that um, that set up some feelings and some conflicts in me that it has taken years to overcome, and I'm not sure they are completely yet. You know, it's just, you just don't live that way for a long time, with, I think, in my opinion, without it does a lot of damage to the way you feel about yourself and the way you relate to other people. Um, we moved, we moved back to, um, the United States. And a lot of things happened. Um, my father passed away about a week after we got back. And I guess I went into a depression and Daryl, I didn't know what to do with him, but he finally, um, got to his first treatment center. And I guess the miracle that hurt, that happened for me was everything quit working. And I, I don't know why. I think it's, you know, I, 
I don't understand it. It's just um, kind of, it was a miracle, really. I would drink, and I didn't feel it. I would take pills, and I didn't feel I didn't feel better. I didn't feel worse. I didn't feel anything. I'm just one more step trouble. So when you're, when you're, it's like anything, I guess, when it quits working, you quit using it. And um, I was not, when you can hardly get up from the, from the couch on a daily, you know, one day at a time on a daily basis. I guess even my um, trying to control other people had diminished by then. It, um, you know, it, there was just nothing working. I didn't much care what anybody else did. And I think part of that, um, we were talking in that sexuality uh, women's AA meeting last night. I think part of that was life had gotten so painful that to avoid feeling the pain, I shut down. I shut down all feelings. I, and it's it's taken a long time for some of those feelings to come back. Um, yeah, I can cry for a long time, and I certainly can laugh. I, if, you know, I just didn't feel anything. I was just numb. I was just numb. And uh, I think that, that a lot of us get that way. A A N L N. That and that that maybe that's a maybe that's a gift of God too, in, in a way. Maybe if we maybe we just would have um, come undone or had a nervous breakdown or something from the intense pain. I don't know, but anyway, that that's what I know that I don't understand it, but I know that's what happened. And it was, you know, it was coming into the program and beginning to, to work the steps. And it, and it was beginning to cry. And, you know, I don't think you can talk about, um, about joy without talking about pain. I think that's, you know, they're the two, the two, um, sides of the same coin, kind of. But, um, we finally did after, after, Daryl went to treatment a couple of, he went to treatment a second time, and he came out on a Friday, and I went in the following Monday, and I still didn't think that I had a real, I went in an Al-Anon, that was before they had family treatment, but I went in an Al-Anon anyway, because I wasn't, uh, I wasn't going to admit that I had a problem, and by then I had pretty much stopped, because they weren't working anyway, and it, it took me a while, and I was a very controlled alcoholic, you know, I was, um, a lot of, People that hear speakers at AA meetings, and you know, I would have done a lot more. If I'd known I was going to have to get up and tell big groups about what I did, I would have done a lot more fun stuff, you know. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of time I just sat home and burned the roast and yelled at the kids or something. (laughs) That just goes so far. But, um, (laughs) I didn't, I didn't know that. Um, but anyway, um, I did, I did finally see, I did begin to see that even though I had at times had an illusion of control in taking pills and drinking, that I was indeed an alcoholic and that, that, um, and I had some real mixed feelings about when I, when I understood the concept in AA of total abstinence, I had some real mixed feelings about that even for, I could see how sick Carol was and how he had not been able to control it even early, you know, but, but the thought because I was still hanging on to some of those old ideas that that um, 
our social life, which had been nil for years anyway. I, I don't know what, but that without cocktail parties, it wouldn't be any fun. You know, I was still hanging on to that old idea, and, and it took me a while to let go of that. You know, I could see that if he quit drinking, I was going to have to also. And um, so I, I, I had some trouble with that, but I didn't, uh, I didn't have anywhere else to go. It was one of those deals. I just didn't have anywhere else to go. So we started coming to AA, and I think through the process of, of getting back in touch with those feelings, uh, happy and sad. You know, the, the uh, I can remember when my son went to college, and he went quite a way away from home, so I know I'm going to get to see him very much. And I, I drove there with him, and I rode the bus back. And I can remember just sitting on that bus. This was about uh, six years ago. Sitting on that bus and just crying for about 100 or 150 miles. And it felt so good to not try to run from those feelings, you know, but to to just experience them and know that they were real and they were good, you know, and, and, um, and a part of life. And that's what I ran from for so long. That's exactly what, you know, that's what was so scary to me was how I felt, and especially the pain. But even, you know, fear, excitement, whatever, they were terrifying. I just didn't know how to handle them. But um, the, I think when I first came in the program, in addition to um, re- having repressed all these things for so long, that I had so much conflict and anger and fear that it seemed, you know, I, I kind of have this theory that I'm not real clear on, but that if you have like a million cells in your body, and and I was like it in civil war, half a million on this side and half a million on this side, and they were fighting, <laughs> and that didn't leave any cells to feel anything else, you know, just that con- constant conflict and all that negative stuff. So it began to build a value system of what's right for me, you know, for myself. And as long as I do what I believe is right for me, then I'm not in conflict. And to begin to get rid of some of that guilt. Because I had, you know, nobody could have lived up to the images I had for myself as a a wife and mother and daughter. Nobody could have. So to realize that uh, a lot of this guilt was misplaced and to get some outside help. You know, and, and to get some perspective, because a lot of times, um, I thought when I first came in that I was so intelligent and complex that it would take some kind of a, of a super psychiatrist to unravel all the stuff, but, you know. But, you know, all it really takes is somebody with a little perspective, which I have more than I did have before, but still don't have on a daily basis. It's a perspective on my life, you know. I've, um, I've heard Speakers saying, I think it's so true in AA and Allen on both. You know, it's, we get in a self-obsessed state and it's, it's the issue of like, I, I understand that you have pain and problems, but I have pain and problems. And you know, that's when I'm in trouble. <laughs> when that, when that is what I think. <laughs> and that, that really, that does shut off. The um, 
the joy and the, and the laughter. Um, the other thing that I think hearing, you know, that I, hearing NAA and Al-Anon meetings is one of the things that, that shuts off the, the joy and laughter. It's when I'm feeling like a victim. You know, it's not funny to be a victim. And, um, I felt like a victim for a long time. Certainly, uh, in the act of alcoholism. I felt like he was ruining my life, you know. And, of course, what made, I felt like he was doing it deliberately. I'm like, gosh, he's going to great lengths to ruin my life and make me unhappy. He's killing himself. You know, that's really, that's amazing. Uh, I didn't realize he couldn't stop. I didn't realize he didn't have any choice. And I think that, you know, we talk about, we talk about powerlessness a lot. But, you know, God did give us some power. And I think our job is to learn how to use it right, in the right way. And when I learn, uh, when I begin to learn, what I do have control over in my life and what I don't, then I don't have to feel like a victim, you know, because I've always got choices. I don't always like them, but I've always got them. And I think that's, uh, for me, that has, that has freed up a lot of that. And, it, and at least if I've made a choice and screwed up my own life, I'm not angry at somebody else. You know, I might beat myself up a little bit, but it's still, at least it was my choice. And um, and that's important for me. That's important for me. Today, Daryl does not make me happy on a daily basis. You know, he just doesn't. But I've learned that's not his job. <laughs> that it's my life. And um, that's my that's my business if I'm unhappy. And, I, you know, I, it's not just alcoholics. That that seems to be. I work in his office now. He's a pediatrician. That's an issue in a lot of people's lives that don't have drinking or drug problems. You know what? What they have control over and what they don't, and, and you know the the influence that the spouse has on their lives and that sort of thing. Um, I was after nine, and I talked, and she told me the subject. I was thinking. Just a few days ago, I was thinking, I have really got to find some material to quote, you know, in, about this, so it won't just be my, so I have some experts to back up my opinions. And now I thought, no, I really don't have time. And, and it, as it happened, I was reading, I've been reading a book called Love, Medicine, and Miracles by a Bernie Siegel, MD. It's a book for cancer patients. But it has a lot about positive thinking and how, you know, he believes that stress contributes to a lot of illnesses. And, and if you thought yourself sick, you can also think yourself well. Or even if, or even if you don't think yourself well, you can at least improve the quality of life you do have on a daily basis. So it just, you know, within three or four pages of that, here is this, um, section in his book that says play and laughter. And about having a balanced life. So I'm gonna, I wanna, um, he quotes some people. He quotes, uh, Sir William Osler, who wrote a little book, I think it's, uh, one, uh, some little book, I can't, 24 hours or something that some people in the program, um, have quoted about 
living one day at a time and keeping life in daytight compartments. But another another quote of this man is that he called laughter the music of life that makes the unbearable bearable. And I think that's really neat. He also quotes Norman Cousins that calls laughter internal jogging. <laughs> and, and he says, exercise, laughter, and play are closely related. They need to be approached in much the same spirit. And all three probably produce similar effects on the mind and body. And he talks about this perspective. It's like a little vacation when you can laugh. You, you know, you can get out of yourself and get some perspective. Uh, when you go back to your problems, usually you have a little bit of perspective. And he talks about the, the actual physiological uh, responses of your body, of tense, tensing the muscles and then relaxing. And that uh, they're doing some um, research about uh, some of these uh, brain chemicals, like the endorphins, that are possibly released during times of laughter or, or happiness, like kind of like the, the runner's high. And um, so I think, you know, I, if, for me, I can only be where I am. You know, if I'm having a bad day and nothing's funny, nothing's funny. You know, it's just not. But I can also think, uh, if this is something I need to do for my good mental health, you know, I can, I can make an effort. I can, sometimes it's something as simple as renting a funny movie, you know. Or I think that we're really lucky because I think kids are funny. And a lot of times, and I, there's hardly a day that goes by that some kid or, or a mother, some new mo- new mothers are funny too. <laughs> See, uh, the other day a gal came in, this was her first baby, and she said, the baby's like two months old. She said, this baby goes to the bathroom at the worst time. <laughs> and, you know, I do not to this day know whether she was serious or not, but she was very concerned. <laughs> it, it, it really, you know, but you have to open, what I've had to do is open myself up to that. You know, just um, at least be there and be willing to see the humor in the, in the things that happen in my daily life. Um, I want to re- close by reading something from the prophet by um, Gibran, and it's sort of um, it's how I feel about, and I think it's why we're so lucky in the program because we all have known a lot of sorrow, and I think it it comforts me to think that that sorrow had a purpose, you know. And so I'm going to read this. It says. Then a woman said, Speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, Your joy is your sorrow unmasked, and the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. That's me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for asking me.